Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Fellow cardio nerds, this is Amit. My co-fellow Karthik and I are so very excited to be here with Dr. Jerry Easta as part of our fully immersive heart failure awareness cardio nerd series. Actually, this whole series was Dr. Eastep's idea in the first place. So Dr. Eastep, thank you for your awesome suggestion and thank you more for your time today. Thank you both for having me and for following up on implementing this important effort. Yeah, it's such a great idea. It was hard not to. Before we get started, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Amit, thanks for having me back. I'm really excited to do this podcast with you and Dr. Estep. Uh, friends, it's really such a pleasure to talk with Dr. Jerry Estep today and learn about options for end-stage cardiomyopathy. Dr. Estep earned his Bachelor of Arts at the University of Texas, Austin, and subsequently received his medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine. He completed his internal medicine residency training at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and went back to Baylor for his cardiology and heart failure fellowship training. Prior to joining Cleveland Clinic in 2018 as our section head for the Division of Heart Failure and Transplant, Dr. Estep was the section head of heart failure at Methodist DeBakey in Houston. Dr. Estep has been involved in numerous clinical trials and co-authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles. He has a special interest in mechanical circulatory support devices and has published heavily on the percutaneous placement of intraortic balloon pump in the axillary artery as a long-term support option to bridge patients to transplant. We always love working with Dr. Estep. He's an outstanding clinician and terrific role model, and we are really fortunate to speak to him today. So Dr. Estep, this whole series was your brainchild. We'd love to hear from you about what Heart Failure Awareness Week is all about and why it matters. So both of you, thank you uh, again for the kind opportunity to highlight my thoughts. And Heart Failure Awareness Week, Step back at where it came from. There was Senator Specter back in 2000 who convinced the Senate to ensure that this was acknowledged in the national awareness, typically the second week of February. And it was because of the disparities, really inequities, as it relates to research and awareness of how prevalent heart failure is. And when we think of lung cancer and breast cancer, certainly these are conditions that merit attention and research focus. But heart failure is has a prevalence that is typically much higher than uh those conditions affecting um, patients, typically several fold, whether it's men or, or women. And so I think it's evolved over the last now or 20 years into this uh, effort. And it's important because there's still gap, uh, knowledge-based gaps related to this. Heart failure doesn't discriminate. It affects young, older, males, females. And there are disparities, in particular with both black uh, males and females. And, and the symptomatology that defines heart failure um, can be less typical for some, particularly females. And so I think the awareness positions us to understand heart failure in, in, in terms of it, its continued significance as it relates to morbidity and mortality and these gaps I've highlighted. And just to comment in terms of the current epidemiology of heart failure, now a little around 7 million patients in the United States 
you look at the most contemporary heart and stroke statistics. Um, and I think what's very alarming, it's the number one cause for hospitalization, certainly in the Medicare age group, Medicare beneficiaries over the age of 65. And when you look at the frequency of hospitalizations coupled with the uh, less than ideal prognosis, looking out three to five years after a patient's diagnosed, certainly in the setting of depressed heart function. Heart failure awareness is needed, and we need to do our part, right? Not only to know our own heart, but to spread the word in terms of what this condition is, how prevalent it is, and, and close those gaps as it relates to what we do as heart failure providers and providers in general to improve upon this morbidity and mortality for these patients. Well, amen to that. And guardianers, um, we feel honored to help uh, contribute to that uh, important goal. So let's uh, start off with the basics on these advanced therapies. Dr. Eastep, what are these advanced and some may say salvage therapies for heart failure? What are the major indications? And when is the right time to start thinking about these options for a given patient? Yeah, so thank you. I think that is critically important. When to understand appropriate timing for an end organ intervention. So let me start off by highlighting that our aim is to be able to detect end-stage heart failure. And that's different from stage C heart failure. And there's no one finding, if you will, whether it's symptom-based or physical exam-based, imaging as a surrogate uh, or laboratory-based that equals end-stage heart failure. Uh, For patients that have progressive symptoms, despite appropriate use of medicines and, and more simple devices. If patients are progressing, and if that's coupled with frequent hospitalizations um, and a decrease in one's functional capacity, many times we measure that to compare to bench, benchmark, um, then we're worried about patients transitioning into this end-stage heart failure category. So there's multiple domains uh, that we look at to understand if someone's transitioned into that end-stage heart failure category. Because if that is the case, then we think, based on modeling, that there's more than a 50% chance of progression in the patient passing away um, over the next ensuing several months to a year and a half. And so uh, there is a number of findings, if you will, that suggest more advanced heart failure. And, and I need help is a mnemonic we often mm-hmm. keep in mind, uh, published in, in, by Dr. Clyde Yancey. It's supported by the um, AHA. And I think um, one can look at that. Uh, mnemonic in terms of refractory to medicines, needing autotropes in and out of the hospital, um, to go over a few. And so the when someone is assessed and, and, and diagnosed with end-stage heart failure, and sometimes it's easy when they're in the hospital, critically ill in the unit on multiple medicines to keep them alive, worsening kidney function, we're worried about events, end-stage heart failure. Certainly there's nothing we can do to improve the condition. But once we're there, what are we talking about? End organ interventions are heart transplant or device replacement therapy, typically with a durable VAD um, or um, the use of a total artificial heart. And so we we screen um, patients for appropriateness in terms of benefits, risks, and understanding patient desires and patient expectations and patient's goals. Whether proceeding with the transplant or a durable left ventricular assist device or a total artificial heart would be appropriate. And if not, and we think patients have end-stage heart failure, considering palliative care. And so I think most important is being clear about the assessment in terms of end-stage and then carefully weighing um, the appropriateness in terms of indication and contraindications, which we can talk about as it relates to transplant, durable VAD, 
less commonly used, but consideration for the total artificial heart or palliative care. Thank you, Dr. Easter. That's very helpful as a roadmap for when a non-heart failure specialist should start considering getting somebody like you involved in the management of their patients. And we're also excited to have gotten Dr. Rob Rozek, the clinical director of palliative care at University Hospital, for a talk as part of the series later on for palliative care as it pertains to the management of these patients. So, Dr. Eastep, once you're seeing these patients and you begin your evaluation for these therapies, what are the factors that you're looking at that goes into someone's candidacy for LVAD or transplant? For, for transplant, we want to understand um, a number of things. We want to understand potential infection risk. So, yes, we're working up um, to understand perioperative list related to the heart transplant and pulmonary hypertension, for example. But we want to understand the, the full breadth of the patient's uh, risk in terms of cancer risk, infection risk, in addition to risk that's heart-specific after heart transplant. Um, so we, we typically are working with colleagues uh, that have expertise in infectious disease. Uh, we, too, are very attentive to appropriateness and screening as it relates to colonoscopy, um, prostate, breast cancer um, for, for females. And so once we're confident that there's no uh, other co-condition that would limit mortality, typically less than a year, um, then we're thinking, okay, transplant may be a good option. And, and specifically for transplant, we look at hemodynamics measured in the cath lab as the gold standard to ensure that the patient's pulmonary vasculature is not overtly remodeled. Specifically, we can calculate what's called the transpulmonary gradient. Um, which is the uh, mean pulmonary pressure minus the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. We can measure cardiac output and divide the transpulmonary gradient by the cardiac output to calculate pulmonary vascular resistance. And we typically want or love to see the transpulmonary gradient under 15, the pulmonary vascular uh, resistance under 4 uh, woods units. Because when, so when we put in a new heart, what's most susceptible to not do as well because it's not trained as well is the right function of the new donor heart. And so if there's pulmonary vasculature above and beyond those cutoffs I gave you, then those patients are at higher risk for RV failure. So, so there's a hemodynamic assessment as it relates to candidacy. Now, we look for frailty, and you know there's not a cutoff here at the Cleveland Clinic for age, and we've transplanted patients well into their early to mid-70s, carefully selected in the absence of frailty. And so frailty can, can certainly be assessed at the bedside, and not only with a good physical exam, but a good understanding of underlying cognition. And there's formal frailty assessments related to hand grip and the patient's ability to, to exercise um, that we look at. So in, in the absence of frailty and the presence of pulmonary hypertension that's just driven by heart failure and not out of proportion, the absence of infection or malignancy risk, we'll start to think this patient may be a candidate for, for heart transplant. It's important to ensure that there's no other end organ compromise that's not reversible. So patients may have diabetes and intrinsic renal disease, and so we'd be concerned about that candidacy for transplant if that were the case. So we screen patients for any concomitant lung disease or liver disease, which would complicate transplant. So I focus in on transplant and what's a common denominator both for transplant and LVAD, these end organ interventions, is appropriate support. And patients that have an end organ intervention can't do this alone. And so it's very important to go through an active psychosocial evaluation, not only for support to ensure that the patient's loved ones and, and care providers are all on the same page as it relates to the needs after transplant, but to ensure we're not missing anything from an excessive stress burden it would be for a patient as it relates to the financial situation 
um, and or any coping standpoint or substance abuse standpoint. And I would highlight that though there is contraindications as it relates to active tobacco use and active alcohol or illicit drug use. So our, our social work investigation into these imp- important domains guides us to tease out appropriateness for transplant um, or for LVAD. And just to highlight and be comprehensive about LVAD, um, in addition to what I mentioned for heart transplant, we want to ensure that the patient's right heart has enough reserve, if you will, to where once the left side of the heart is assisted with the left ventricular assist device, we want to make sure we're positioned to understand what the likelihoods of overt RV failure are. And so we too, again, don't hang our hat on any one parameter, but we look at the severity of illness, how sick the patient is. Um, We look at and measure their hemodynamics and can try to get a good sense based upon a number of different um, parameters. We look at the echocardiogram to screen for RV remodeling out of proportion to LV remodeling based on RV size and RV function, um, to name a few. And we have some other modeling parameters that are based on clinical grounds and, and um, medicine use that guide us to understand whether someone's at preclusive risk, high risk, medium risk, or low risk. And so we work with our surgical colleagues and, and uh, uh, come up with that team assessment um, to guide us about bad candidacy. Yeah, no, I think uh, the evaluation for advanced therapies is probably one of the most involved evaluations we do for for patients in the hospital. And, you know, having just been on the heart failure service, I was particularly amazed by the team approach, Um, you know, the involvement of social worker and the nurse managers, the surgeons, the heart failure attending. So that was really nice to see and how the team sort of came together to cradle the patient at the center. Dr. Estep, what are these intermax profiles and why are they so important in categorizing and really differentiating among these patients? Yeah, so I think um, um, that's a very important question as it relates to this categorization of underlying severity of illness. And the intermax profiles um, were defined to help us understand appropriate timing and trajectory for durable VAD related to underlying severity of illness. And so intermax one, um, the lowest score, reflects the sickest patient. And as a category, to keep it easy to remember, someone with severe refractory cardiogenic shock. These are the patients that are in the ICU, end organ failure, certainly of the heart coupled with renal and or liver failure, needing to use IV medicines to keep them um, alive and not, not uncommonly needing to use mechanical ventilation because of the uh, the overt uh, hemodynamic compromise. So severe refractory um, failure. Um, Intermax 2 are those patients that are aren't as sick as Intermax 1, but aren't doing as well someone stable on, on, on an ionotrope. So patients sliding despite the use of a, of a parental ionotrope like dobutamine or mirinone. So they typically associate with high-grade symptoms, rest, breathlessness. Um, these patients can start having uh, worsening, for example, kidney and or liver function as a reflection of, of their underlying heart failure, and they're in that spectrum of, of cardiogenic shock. Intermax 3 is a category defined for patients that had high-grade symptoms like rest, breathlessness, um, with or without compromising end organ function, and had low cardiac output signs, whom we use in onotrope, and these patients get better. And, and typically, we try a weaning strategy at least once, and to be more specific about dependency, typically twice. But these patients that are put on an onotrope and then get better, and then we wean the onotrope off, and they get worse, and we put it back on, they're deemed onotrope dependent. And, and the rematch trial um, really nicely categorized the trajectory of these patients that are onotrope dependent. We know at one year, 75% may end up have progression and pass away. And, it's around 90% at two years. But patients that are stable on an uh, onotrope 
with improved symptoms and improved end organ function uh, are deemed Intermax 3. And it's this 4 through 7 non-ionotrope category that typically is reserved for those ambulatory patients. And Intermax 4 is associated with patients with rest breathlessness um, and advanced heart failure features. And 5 through 7, to be quite honest, can be harder to tease out. Um, But typically 5 and 6 are patients with uh, shortness of breath with minimal exertion but advanced heart failure features and compromised functional capacity. With 7 reserved for those... Um, that are less symptomatic, but still sufficiently ill. And we're learning more and more um, about how to tease out four through seven. And we, I think, have sufficient evidence now based upon Metamax, Roadmap, and Revival registries. And Roadmap was an observational trial, which I had a privilege to oversee. We're learning that those patients that are Intermax 4, whom aren't as sick as those that are anotrope dependent or worse, Intermax 2 and 1, still have a very poor trajectory in, in despite the use of medicines. And we always um, advocate use of guideline-directed medical therapy, looking for things we can reverse related to resynchronization, revascularization. Those patients that have progressive symptoms, remodeled EFs, in and out of the hospital, we're worried. Their, their one-year survival may be compromised significantly mortality in excess of 50% at one year. And, it's, and so it, it would be very important, and even before that, to have these patients in the system, in a system where end organ intervention candidacy, appropriateness aligned with patients' expectations can be evaluated and, and discussed. So what we strive to achieve here at the Cleveland Clinic within our system of care is awareness as it relates to detection of more advanced heart failure and not waiting for that Intermax 1, 2, or 3 to then pull the trigger to get the team involved. We'd much rather be involved and see someone in the outpatient arena, Intermax 4 through 7. And so these patients with shortness of breath with minimal exertion, maybe not tolerating their guideline-directed medical therapy, you're having to pull away the medicines because of blood pressure, coupled with compromising kidney function. Um, So these patients that aren't doing well, we really want to be evaluated by a transplant or LVAD center to understand going back to that benefit or risk, you know, indications and, and, and exclusion criteria to understand if this is something, if this would be the next step. And that really merits, based upon multiple domains, thoughtful um, evaluation team based. Thank you for that. Yeah. It sounds like the Intermax profiles really help differentiate among the spectrum of NYHA4 and stage D um, heart failure patients to help prioritize management strategies and resource utilization. Yeah, and, agreed. Agreed. And Ahmed, it sounds like Dr. Estep is saying he would prefer to see these patients earlier on and work them up in a methodical manner as an outpatient rather than finding them and consulting them on when they're in their Intermax 1 profile. But Sometimes we have no option, and we do tend to see these patients when they are the Intermax 1 patient. So, Dr. Estep, when you do come across a patient like this, what do you have in your arsenal to be able to help these patients, to bridge them to uh, one of these uh, advanced therapies that we're talking about, if they're a candidate? So, yeah, no, thank you for that. Is that while we love nothing more than to meet patients and their family, care provider, caregiver, loved one earlier, that is our reality is that we see patients in shock in Intermax 1, 2, for example. And we, too, want to optimize the patient's condition. The better you look and are from a physiologic standpoint going into a surgical procedure like a durable vet, 
the better you are afterwards. And so, you know, historically, using these devices, um, you know, more than 10, 15 years ago, we were placing them in patients that were the sickest. And we've learned that perioperative mortality goes up, length of stay post-index LVAT goes up, and one-year survival is compromised in those that are Intermax 1. And so when you look at the Intermax registry, which captures the, uh, the survival, quality of life, adverse event profile um, observations in those that have had uh, devices implanted, we're doing less Intermax 1 patients. That's, that's by a selection. Now, we try to optimize those patients that are max 1 or 2. And so what does optimization mean? Optimization means stabilizing blood pressure, stabilizing underlying hemodynamics, and improving the acute end organ injury goes along with end-stage heart failure, like acute kidney injury, liver failure. Patients are on the breathing machine, not aware of the situation. We try to bring the patient into our reality of decision-making. So we use temporary mechanical support to stabilize the situation, not uncommonly with um, medicines, to understand um, whether we're able to reverse or improve upon those conditions that carry higher risk at the time of durable VAD. So the way I like to phrase it is we try to meld a patient into candidacy. And I use meld um, purposefully in that the meld score is actually reflective of a higher risk candidate. And we did a, a study years back where we looked at those patients with a MELD that was in excess of 1719 Intermax 1. And when we were able to, through the use of temporary support and IV medicines, we were able to lower their MELD, their post-LVAD trajectory looked much like someone with a lower Intermax. And so I think it's very important to have um, goals in mind when using temporary devices uh, as it relates to looking at the laboratory database, the patient physical exam, and having goals to understand if you can save an Intermax 1 patient and make them into a better candidate for something like a durable VAD with higher likelihood of success of being uh, uh, achieving the goals of you know heart failure remission, getting them out of the intensive care unit, early transitions of care to get them home and, and back to the quality of life they deserve. And so those are the things that come to mind as it relates to optimization. And Dr. Estep, while we're on this topic, you've mentioned temporary mechanical support. I know we're going to have many more lectures dedicated to this in the future, but can you tell us what exactly you mean when you say temporary mechanical support? Yeah, no, so I think, I think it's important. We have, a, a, as part of our armamentarium to treat these patients, we have devices that predominantly su- support the left side of the heart, um, devices that can support the left and right or right alone. And so we're not prescriptive one device fits every patient. What we take into consideration is the severity of the illness. We look for concomitant challenges as it relates to maintaining oxygen levels. Not uncommonly, the lungs are involved as it relates to needing to oxygenate a patient. Take into consideration the acid-base profile of a particular patient. So we use anywhere from ECMO, the equivalent of a heart-lung machine. We can place that peripherally uh, um, or centrally with, with help from our surgical colleagues to provide biventricular support take over or help significantly those that have oxygenation problems. And it, it certainly permits us to improve upon acid-base disturbance. So the sickest of the sick, not uncommonly, we're thinking of um, AV um, ECMO. And, and in patients that aren't as sick, um, or we think it's predominantly left-sided, and we have a window of opportunity to provide isolated mechanical support, not needing to use extra measures for oxygenation or acid-base, uh, we think of the Impella family of devices, and, and I, at our institution, we're using more commonly the 5.0 or the Smart Assist 5.5. It provides the most robust um, level of support. We do have access to the uh, Tandem Heart, 
a little bit more complicated in the context of needs in terms of transeptal puncture. Um, but there's a robust uh, device that offers ro- uh, robust hemodynamic support. And we have not forgotten commonly used device, the intraortic balloon pump. And it does play a role in particularly those with acute on chronic heart failure complicated by shock when it's not on the extreme spectrum of, of severity. And in patients whom have hypotension coupled with an organ dysfunction, you, our strategy not uncommonly is to first place a femoral balloon and, and to screen in increments of an hour, two hours um, response. And so the balloon's nice in that it can be placed at the bedside. And if patients are having refractory um, signs, we can we can then think of impella devices. Uh, and if certainly if it's more overt, um, ECMO. And I, and I will highlight that not, sometimes we use these devices in combination, particularly when we're filled, we need biventricular support. We use peripheral AV ECMO with a venting strategy, either a balloon pump or an impella. And so that is a talk in and of itself or, or yes. a discussion, I, I must highlight. Um, and so what, what I and we, I should say, emphasize and highlight that it should be a team approach and you want to tailor the needs to the patient. If you can go down the path of least resistance and, 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 and maintain stability, that's great. Um, but some patients, you need more overt support. And so the path of least resistance may not, not be the best. And it's all about timing. So you, we don't, we don't be, we're not prescriptive. You tailor to the patient's needs. You gain familiarity and expertise with a number of devices. And then you um, uh, improve upon your pathways and protocols so that the entire team is comfortable. And then you put it in context of recovery and or the need for an endo-organ intervention, like we've been talking about, heart transplant or LVAD or palliative care for select patients. I really appreciate that. I especially appreciate you saying that there is no one-size-fits-all. It's not a standardized algorithm, and you can't be prescriptive. In the context, I think it'll be interesting to see how practice uh, sways when it comes to impeller devices, but it's hard to make generalizations when patient-level decisions have to be so individualized. Um, I was interested to learn about the uh, use of a balloon pump in the axillary position to help support patients through uh, this process. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, and how is it different from using the femoral artery? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's a, a strategy, a technique I've been using since 2007. And the reason yeah, we, we started doing axillary balloon pumps, then I was in Houston, was because of a need for upright sitting and the, the well-accepted um, need for ambulation prior to transplant. And this was significantly, you know, before the new heart transplant allocation score. But then in Texas, and typical of the South and the West Coast, um, you have the means to support patient directly to transplant, and particularly those that have contraindications to, to an LVAD, where we think transplant would be the best or better next step. And what comes to mind are like patients with amyloid or mechanical mitral valve prosthesis or those needing multi-organ transplant. Um, like heart kidney um, or heart liver. So in select patients where we felt transplant was the next step even back then, but wanting to support them for stability, the balloon pump we started to use in the, to be honest, when we first started, it was the subclavian position, mm-hmm. but we, I quickly recognized that with the, the clavicle right there and the exit strategy being a little bit more challenging, uh, we went lateral. Many patients have a ICD or a CRTD, and so we're lateral to that to that pocket. And what's nice about the technique um, is that um, it can be learned. And I personally have trained more than a dozen uh, providers. And these aren't necessarily interventionalists, but heart failure specialists that are comfortable in the cath lab. And so what we do different from the femoral is that it's uh, by using a micropuncture technique, that's my bias, is in a a road uh, map wire in the subclavian axillary artery, fluoroscopy, 
AP cranial projections. It's uh, direct access into the lateral third of the axillary artery. And then um, this technique and procedure, which we've published on in the past, is associated with uh, very, very low periprocedure uh, risk. And the balloon pumps, once access is secured, is simply put upside down. And it served in 80, 85% of the patients as a, uh, a means to get to transplant in terms of bridge. Now, the, the technology is still leveraging that from the femoral. And so there's still a number of uh, opportunities, if you will. And so one of the challenges is, is this balloon pump can be pulled back. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of extra you know, balloon pump needed outside of the thoracic cavity uh, that can cause some challenges in terms of kinking. And so I, too, look forward to improvements in technology. Um, but there is a, a learning curve related to management on the back end. I think the putting the device in is the easier part, but managing it and maintaining positioning is um, is important. So it, it, it's helped us tremendously um, as it relates to stabilizing patients, those that respond to femoral balloon, to permit extended support. And our median duration of support then, this is several years back, was 50 days, and we've had now over uh, 18 days, I should say, median support of over 18 days. We've now had over 30 patients here at the Cleveland Clinic supported by an axillary balloon pump as a bridge to heart or heart multi-organ transplant uh, with similar success in about 80-85%. And patients may have progression. And so you have to be very cognizant with hemodynamic monitoring and screening for complications. But those patients that have a progressive heart failure, despite this technique, you want to consider an impella bridge or or if they're a candidate for an LVAD, committing it to a durable VAD uh, as a bridge. And so what, what I would say is that, yes, this more... Um, new, if you will, is no longer new, but novel technique of placement permits extended support. But these patients need to be carefully monitored. Um, and if they're not doing well, one needs to think of alternative strategies. And where are these patients while they have this axillary uh, balloon pump in place? Are they These patients are typically either in a step-down or a unit-type environment. We still are using um, pretty aggressive nursing care in terms of ratios. So they're in our heart failure unit here at the Cleveland Clinic, which is a 10-bed unit. Um, where we're very comfortable to monitor patients with devices and swans and impellas. So these patients are permitted to sit upright and ambulate in our heart failure unit recovery um, area. And and we've aligned our nursing, and they've been champions as it relates to nursing protocols, ambulation protocols, um, surveillance protocols related to uh, not only the basics of uh, radio artery and screening for any compromise in, 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 in based on exam surveillance, but screening x-rays and the use of anticoagulation. And so it's uh, it's been a nice um, platform that's complementary to what we have uh, to support select patients. That's really neat. That is very neat. And especially with that extended amount of wait time for the transplant, it's nice to see that these patients are able to ambulate, maintain some level of activity uh, rather than stay in the bed. So Dr. Estep, LVAD technology has certainly evolved over the past uh, few years. The challenge with transplant, of course, is organ allocation. I'm wondering how, um, what are the outcomes now with patients that have an LVAD, and how has that changed the balance of the discussion between an LVAD versus a transplant for a given patient? So I think that's a super important question. And I think not only has technology with these ventricular assist devices improved, but it's also, we've learned a lot about patient selection, and there's been a uh, better understanding of optimal management. So I think when you look at all three of those things, we can say with confidence that our patients are doing better as it relates to quality of life and projected survival. And the, the most, uh, I think, important um, improvement from a technology standpoint 
that's associated with better outcomes is uh, maglev-based technology, and that was uh, examined uh, with the HeartMate 3. I had the privilege of being part of that journey, certainly part of the, the trials. And we are seeing uh, the best survival we've seen at two years after an LVAD, between 80-83%. So when we compare that to heart transplant at two years, that gap is closing. Um, and importantly, related to improved hemocompatibility relate, as it relates to how this pump is designed with um, larger pathways for blood to course through the pump and back into the ascending aorta and through the body and this um, artificial pulse that lends itself to washing out of the pump, less clotting, we've seen improvements in outcome, namely freedom from having to change the pump out for hemolysis or clot or pump malfunction. Um, we're also seeing uh, low st- lower stroke rates than before, 10% at two years. And we're also seeing reduction in bleeding, much more hemocompatibility, uh, lending to a more forgiving pump, being associated with very good survival and less stroke and less bleeding complications, including uh, gastrointestinal bleeding, which has been an, a challenge in these patients supported by VADs. And so it certainly... Um, is important to highlight how that changes or influences the conversation. And I think every medical review board or advanced heart failure team for an individual patient is trying to tease out the best next step. Heart transplant, which we know is associated with very good long-term outcome, median survival uh, for for all patients closer to the 12-year mark. Um, And so LVADs were, were very happy or associated with improved survival, but there's still some adverse events. Not that there's not adverse events associated with transplant. So we want to um, put forth the projected trajectory in terms of quality of life, survival, adverse events associated with either strategy and make the best decision. It's wonderful always to see a patient benefiting from this evolution and these advances. But these words, advanced therapies, LVAD, transplant, are still... I think for many, frightening. And the process of going through the evaluation and hearing about the adverse effects is is daunting. And I cannot imagine what must be going through these patients' minds when discussing these incredibly invasive and truly forever life-altering decisions. How do you counsel patients through this process? So I think um, first and foremost, taking the time and commitment to do so. And it's not only by one provider Um, but by multiple providers. And I think we've learned a lot over the last um, several years, certainly few years, as it relates to using a decision aid to ensure shared decision making. And so I I had the privilege to be the physician champion of a PCORI grant, um, which positioned us to examine the use of a formal decision aid in patients that were presenting with advanced heart failure to best understand how to um, have this conversation, how to mm. define adverse events, how to understand patients' goals and expectations, and how to incorporate caregiver decision-making. And so certainly not easy, but this was a multi-center initiative we put forth um, as a formal randomized control trial, standard of care versus the use of a decision aid, and it was a VAD decision aid trial published in Journal Cardiac Failure in 2018. And what we learned is that there is an improvement in how much patients know once when we utilize such a decision aid Mm -hmm. um, in terms of closing that knowledge gap. But I think 
important in that is patients understanding the full breadth of adverse events associated with an LVAD, not just by verbal description, but by using figure and illustration forms so they can understand prevalence. Um, caregivers having an opportunity to understand what the stressors may be or the responsibilities may be in caring for a loved one with an LVAD. Um, and the patient's actually hearing testimonials from bad patients, if not having the privilege to meet a bad patient. I'm sure that can be very powerful. So very, very powerful. And it's not just a one-time interaction. It's use of a decision aid. It's highlighting what questions for the patient and their loved one to ask. It's meeting a patient or at the very minimum hearing about testimonials. And then reassessment. Because I think the advanced heart failure team's responsibility is to put forth a formal assessment and recommendation. And if that is an LVAD or heart transplant or, quite frankly, palliative care, the patient's at the center of this and needs to understand these strategies or these um, this recommendation, these recommendations in, in a concrete way. And so I think to answer your question in a simple way, I think it's through shared decision-making. And it's mm-hmm. above and beyond just informed consent. Thank you for that, Dr. Eastap. My final and uh, one of our most important questions for you, you know, you, um, to the benefit of your patients, your learners, and the field, have chosen to devote yourself to heart failure management. What makes your heart flutter about heart failure? Yeah, and I think I I, I like the way you're asking uh, the, the, the question with the fluttering aspect, because with heart failure, there's ups and downs. There's the opportunity to prevent. There's the opportunity to treat those on, on, on the footsteps of dying and death, unfortunately, with severe cardiogenic shock. And so I think it's the spectrum that makes my heart flutter as it relates to opportunity. Um, certainly, we want to do the most good by even preventing uh, the, the illness. Or certainly those that have the onset of heart failure, we want to minimize that trajectory. But we want to be able to rescue those that are at death's door, give them a chance of, of life and life coupled with with quality. So I think it's the, the, the our patients and, and this spectrum that's um, fascinating. And I think on top of that, to do this most successfully, um, it's based on a team. And, and, and so for me, the privilege here at the Cleveland Clinic to work with my colleagues that, that strive for excellence, to provide the best care to patients, um, really positions me to be the most successful I can be for an individual patient. So leveraging, leveraging the team's expertise, the team's commitment, um, just makes heart failure uh, such a exciting field to be, to be part of. And so... That's the flutter uh, basis for, for my desire to, to commit. That's wonderful, Dr. Eastap, to, to prevent, treat, and rescue patients as part of a cohesive team. Well, this uh, concludes this episode. I want to thank my co-fellow Karthik Telekundla, who had to quietly step away to take care of patients. And a very special thank you to you, Dr. Eastap, for, one, giving us this idea to help promote, uh, do our part for uh, promoting heart failure awareness and also the time you took to spend with us and teaching us. It's always such a pleasure to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. And for you taking the time to uh, close these gaps, spread the word on knowing your heart, and most importantly, proven upon not only awareness in general, but these treatment strategies, I sincerely appreciate. And so thank you and congrats on uh, putting this together. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. 
and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Thank <laughs> you.